6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31 through 40. You hear all this talk about SDI, right? You realize we don't have a strategic missile defense. Do you know the Soviets have had one for 15 years? Do you know that they are in their third generation of protection? That um, for us to survive a first strike, we have to knock off 90% of the missiles they throw at us. For them to survive a first strike, they only have to survive 15% of the missiles we throw at them. How you get to those conclusions is not obvious, but that's the mathematics. The Soviets outnumber us in every number. Ships, tanks, people, you name it, by a factor of more than four to one. Our, does our, our Navy is facing a Navy four times its size with better technology. Um, what's disturbing about all of this is the Congress knows this. The Senate knows this, but there's no evidence that they care. They care about getting reelected, and since the voters don't care, they, you know, the voters have issues that are on the voters' mind, and therefore they, in response to that, have those issues on their mind. And it's amazing to me the lack of leadership, the lack of, because there, there are things obviously we can't talk about because they're very sensitive. I'm just giving you the, the highlights, but it's very serious. I can't help but be drawn into these. I happen to have some official relationships with the Computer Industry Association. That's why I'm in Washington frequently and also have some defense contract relationships that are very sensitive. So we mix with these people. There are a few senators that are sensitive and aware, at least, and open, so we can stir it up a little bit. But that's really a serious problem. The basic problem in our country is that we have a one-year budget, two-year Congress, four-year administration, and 15-year programs. That doesn't work. It doesn't get managed. The Soviets have been consistently, substantially, they invest about three times what we do in their military, and they've done it consistently, smoothly for, you know, for the last 30 years. So they're getting big and powerful, and their technology is second to none. Their technology is second to none. The Soviets have led for generations in physics. If you're a mathemat mathematician or a physicist, you know the names of many Russians who have pioneered physics way, way back. We generally, as laymen, are blind to that. They have invested in high-energy physics, particle beams, rail guns, all that sort of thing, for 30 years. The, uh, we're talking about maybe putting a space station up. They've had one manned for two years. We talk about military uses of space as a political argument. They have announced their space fighter that will dock to their space station up there. You always go for the high ground. In the Second World War, it was air superiority. Next cycle, it'll be space superiority, and we are seriously in trouble. So what's the answer? It ain't in the ballot box. It's in your prayer closet. The same message that Jeremiah has for Judah is a message that I think the Lord has for us, that our nation is in, in trouble. And uh, the fortunate thing is that we worship a God who is in the miracle business. 
Uh, something else that I ran across, and this is not unrelated to our study, but rather than try to work it in cleverly, I'll just throw it out in front. I don't know how many of you have, have, have caught the uh, uh, Insight magazine, the, the, the magazine from Washington uh, Times, um, had a cover article, a guy by the name of Alan Bloom. Now, this is not a believer. This is not a Christian thing. It's just an educational, intellectual thing, but it's a very interesting, I think. Alan Bloom has published a book called The Closing of the American Mind, and the book has been picked by Insight Magazine as the book of the year. That's remarkable because the book is a very specialized, erudite, philosophical treatise, but the basic thing that's caught the educators flabbergasted is because here's a guy with incredible philosophical credentials, and I won't go through all that because it doesn't really, I just take my word for it, but his basic position is that the United States is sinking into moral illiteracy, uh, the result of that decades of thought have been devoted to uh, the proposition that morality is a, is a matter of choice. He, what his book turns out to be is a scholarly refutation of relativism. Now, you and I take that for granted because we have the advantage of a spiritual position. We recognize the, that God exists and that therefore that leads to absolutes and therefore there is a morality. But the secular humanism that is the official religion of the United States today doesn't acknowledge that. We believe that everything's our, you know, that society determines its own morals, that morals are a, a relative thing. And obviously, if that's true, then Nazi Germany was all right in deciding that they're going to execute six million Jews. That offends you and I, but by relativism, it's okay. Now, they relativists don't like to say admit that. I mean, they have a problem with that, but they got a lot of problems. Um, but Alan Bloom's book points out that the youth in the colleges today are dedicated not to learning or serving their fellow man, but to exercise and the fulfillment of their passions. Therefore, hedonism, promiscuity, and, and so forth prevail, and they have an inability to uh, uh, distinguish between uh, uh, forms of behavior and uh, so on. And what his point is, is that moral uh, uh, relativism denies that moral truth really exists, and as a result, there's a lack of purpose, and um, that uh, the real thing that he's upset about, he's not a moralist, he's not a theist, he's not a, he's not a minister, he's just a philosopher, a person that teaches philosophy. He points out that this whole movement towards openness um, has not been a met, not been directed at means of exploring answers to questions, but rather an excuse for not even trying to answer them. And so that's caused a whole decay and bankruptcy in our educational establishment. Now, in fact, he refers, he did a lot of phrases that he uses that I think are kind of interesting. He speaks of them as being impoverished souls that are, of course, indifferent to heroes and hostile to greatness. Now, what's interesting about the whole thing is this consciousness that's surfacing. Now, this isn't a consciousness that surfaces from a spiritual root. At least there's no evidence. I don't know Alan Bloom, but there's no evidence of that. But it's interesting that the intellectuals themselves are finally beginning to recognize the bankruptcy of relativism and secular humanism. And I think that's kind of interesting. Um, something else that intrigued me, and this may sound really backwards, I was fascinated by Gary Hart. I was fascinated that the hint of an affair killed his chances politically. There was a day I believe, when the cynics, the professional 
politicians who have dismissed that or watered it over. I remember Chappaquiddick. Okay? It's interesting to me that the cynical professionals recognized that he had no chance of surviving an election. Now, you may sound, this may sound backwards to you. To me, I find that encouraging that there's an, a tacit acknowledgement that the American people have had enough. The American people themselves may compromise their morality. I don't know of any particular guys who have curtailed their affairs because of the Gary Hart exposure. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but they are becoming intolerant of that in their leadership. And that's not a bad first step. And so I was intrigued with that. I'm not accusing you. I'm not, it's, an, it's an alleged situation. I didn't even bother following the details. Let's get to where we, what we came for, and that is to take a look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah. <laughs> the name of the book was Jeremiah, written by... Uh, so the question was, what was the name of the book? The name of the book is The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom. And it's, uh, it's strictly, don't misunderstand, I'm not recommending as why it would be, you'd probably bore you, most of you bore you to death. The real issue, though, is, as, as, an, as a philosopher and an intellectual, as a very highly regarded teacher, he has pointed out that the United States is becoming morally bankrupt because, and has abandoned the whole purpose of education, which was classical, to explore great questions and previous answers and to look for better answers to questions. And American education is use this whole pursuit of openness as an excuse not to explore questions at all. Uh, but um, uh, so that part of, his, part of his main premise is just to return to a, you know, some classical perceptions and things. But, but the real acknowledgement, is, which has caused a real furor in the educational community, and I find this exciting because it's, uh, it comes from a, a voice that they'll listen to. He'll have no answers. Don't misunderstand me. He doesn't have the answer. He just points out the American mind is closed. He's not looking at the issues. It's, it's morally bankrupt. Uh, the answers have to come from an acknowledgement of absolutes. That God does exist, and, and he has a purpose, and those purposes include having a, a goal for us, like keeping commandments and things. And, uh, but that, uh, uh, so don't, don't expect, that's why I'm not recommending the book. I don't think you'll gain any great insight other than just the recognition that there is a problem. Okay, we're in the book of Jeremiah. At last, finally, after all that, stuff up front. Um, we are in Jeremiah 31. We normally try to take a complete chapter or several at a time, but last time we got up to and just touched superficially on verse 31. So we're going to pick up today Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And we didn't press it or try to overdo it because the passage that we are now encountering in Jeremiah 31, 31 it's a very, very, very important passage. This passage deals with what's called the New Covenant. And it'll cause, it has the potential of causing you lots of confusion because this covenant is not between the church or the Gentiles and God. We are heirs to it, and that comes later. That's phase two. Phase one is to recognize that this is a covenant, first of all, the, the, the parties there, are many. it's the house of Judah and the house of Israel, and of course the Lord. So this covenant is with Israel. It's, I don't want to say it's not to you and I, because it ultimately will be, but that, that we haven't gotten there yet. We've got to cross a couple of bridges. Because it does impact you and I so deeply, 
is where the New Testament gets its name. We say it glibly, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, same, same thing. What are we talking What is the Old Covenant? The Torah, the Mosaic Law, Ten Commandments, etc. Right? What's the New Covenant? Well, that's Matthew through Revelation. Well, sort of. What is that? It's a fulfillment of several things in the Old Testament, some passages in Ezekiel, but specifically most people will point you to Jeremiah 31, 31, where through the words of Jeremiah, God promises them a new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. And this is regarded by many scholars as the climax of Jeremiah's teaching. Now, the word behold is sort of the opening announcement here. Uh, the time that, that we've got several factors that, uh, well, let me give an overview and then, and then we'll jump in because the time is at the end times. The time is coming. There's a, there's a Hebrew formula phrase that tips you off if you're a Hebrew scholar that we're talking end time stuff here. This, this particular passage does not relate to the, cha to the uh, siege of Nebuchadnezzar or uh, the going into slavery, you know, all the, all the other things that have preoccupied Jeremiah. This is looking way ahead. Okay. Who's the maker of the covenant? The Lord. Interestingly enough, this covenant is hard to beat. The old covenant was tough. You know, you had to keep laws, and of course you can't, so the covenant's broken. You say, I know the covenant's broken. Well, first of all, I know the covenant's broken because we have a book full of prophets and things that tried to deal with the fact that we broke it. But um, this covenant is one that's going to be... Um, intrinsically, internally, supernaturally fulfilled by the Lord himself. He's going to write his laws in their heart, not in stone. The symbol of the Old Covenant, of course, is the Passover. Symbol of the New Covenant is, of course, the Lord's Supper, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to spend some time tonight contrasting the Old and the New. The Old Covenant was based on merit or works, and the, uh, and the Old Covenant was susceptible of, being, of infractions or, or rules being broken. The Old Covenant had no enablement. There was no, nothing provided with the old, old Covenant to enable you to complete it. God laid down some laws. Israel says, we'll keep all those. Or didn't keep any of them. They broke the first one before he even came down from the mountain. Charles and Heston hadn't even come down the hill, and they're down there with a, with a golden calf and all that. So, uh, uh, but the, so the Old Covenant had no enabler. It was there to show us our need for redemption. The Old Covenant had no mechanism to give life. It only could testify of death. In contrast, of course, the New Covenant is the opposite of all those. It's not on merit. It's by grace. It's not by works. It's by faith. Where the Old One had no enablement, the New Covenant has enablement by the Spirit of God Himself. And, of course, it is the source of life. And uh, so we can, you, you can get into a whole thing there, and I'll let you, you know, develop some of those ideas on your own. If you need a reference for that, just take the New Testament. Okay? But particularly the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans focuses on these issues very specifically. And we'll look at some of those passages before the evening's over. The Mosaic Covenant was uh, all tied up with the physical delivery of Eid from Egypt. And, of course, the New Covenant is a spiritual, eternal covenant dealing with a spiritual deliverance, not from Egypt, but from sin and death. From sin and death. Um, 
maybe the thing we should do, we did this last time, but let's just go ahead and jump in and read from verse 31 through a handful here. And then um, this is one of those occasions when I think it will be constructive to digress a little bit. I usually use pretty superficial excuses to digress. In this case, it's pretty fundamental. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. References both houses, northern and southern kingdoms. And um, in other words, the, 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 the whole of Israel, the 12 tribes. No lost 10 tribe nonsense here. This is the whole enchilada. Verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the old covenant's identity, of course, is with their birth as a nation. I don't know if you realize this. Idiomatically, in the Old Testament, Israel is said to have been born in Egypt. You'll find many phrases to that effect. They went down there as 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes, and they came out of their nation. So they're said to be, it's said to be born in Egypt, okay? Out of Egypt I have called my son, Hosea. Double meaning. It refers to the birth of the nation, but also Matthew uses that to also allude in a cryptic sense or a mystical sense to the return of the Joseph and Mary and, and the babe from Egypt after Herod finally dies. And, and Matthew links that prof prophecy to that too, so it's got a double uh, issue. Anyway, the concept that the old covenant is all linked up with their birth as a nation. The new covenant, we're going to find, is all linked up with a different kind of a birth. It's the idiom from which we get this cliche being born again. We really draw that from John 3, where Nicodemus is scolded for not knowing all this. Very interesting. We all talk about John, John 3, where Nicodemus comes to the Lord by night, right? And, and the Lord, you know, says, unless you be born again. And Nicodemus realizes he's not talking biologically, but to pose the question, he says, what, I'm going to enter my mother's womb again? He knows that. It's just his, his way, his Jewish way of raising the issue. And, of course, the Lord answers him, born of the Spirit, and so on. But it's interesting that he scolds Nicodemus, says, are you a teacher in Israel and know not these things? The Lord Jesus Christ creates an expectation, a reasonable expectation that Nicodemus should have ferreted this out. He didn't have the Gospel of John to read. Where would Nicodemus have learned these things? From the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament? From Jeremiah 31, and also Ezekiel, and some other passages we'll look at shortly. The Old Covenant is the birth of the nation. The New Covenant, the birth to life, the second birth, second, yeah, the born-again experience. Okay. So he says, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Yes, they did. They broke it. They, I am intrigued. They broke it from day one. And the whole bizarre experience uh, uh, of, of, of numbers, uh, the, the wandering in the wilderness, is amazing. Amazing. You know, I had some some very dear friends that are close friends, unsaved, denominational church going, but not really, I, I don't believe really saved, just, you know, but they were, they were happened to be watching the 10, this is years ago, but they were watching the 10 commandments rerun on television and, and, uh, you know, the, the film and they happened to make the marks. They could not get over these people, how 
after the parting of the sea and all this stuff happening, they're worshiping the calf. I mean, they really that really got to them. Uh, gee, how, how what, what obstinate, headstrong people! What an opening, you know. What have we got? We've got the Son of God, and an empty to raise from the dead. We've got healing of leper. You know, we, what whatever they had, we've got a lot more of. And um, how inter- and, and and what they had to do is tougher than we got to do. We just got to believe. That's our job. That's our mission. If we choose to accept it. If, if we don't, the Lord may disavow any knowledge of our actions, right? Just, I haven't worked that out. It popped in my mind. It's probably spurious. I should think those things through before I throw them out. Anyway, uh, verse 33. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, bear in mind, the covenant we're reading about here is a covenant with the house of Israel. We haven't yet developed how this applies to you and I on the presumption that, uh, we're, we're, you know, that I'm speaking to Gentiles. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. You know, that's an interesting objective. I won't take the time now to go search it out, but you'll discover that this business of being their God and they being, they being my people was God's dream, if I can phrase it that way, in Exodus 29, Leviticus 26, and elsewhere. That, that phrase shows up a lot in the Torah. But it will be fulfilled, not in the days of the Torah, but in the future. That's what he's saying here. And what does he mean by putting his law in their hearts? Verse 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. We won't have any need for moral teaching. And every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Interesting thing. Won't be need of teaching. It will be intrinsic inside, natural. The term natural man will have a different meaning in that context than we use it as Paul would use it in the New Testament. Has that happened yet? No, it's yet future. Yet future. It's speaking of a yet a future day in Israel. Verse 35, Thus saith the Lord, who giveth the sun for light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who divideth the sea when its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation for, before me forever. That's backwards kind of reasoning. As long as the universe obeys its laws, that long Israel will be, you know, a nation before me. He's saying it sort of backwards, you know. When those ordinances depart, then Israel will no longer be. And he's, it's, 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 you have to be kind of Jewish to follow the logic. It's, you know, inverted, but gets the point across. It's a rhetorical device. So the first point, who is the covenant to? It's to Israel. But they will be born again in, a, in, in, in an ultimate sense. Now, what's that got to do with you and me? Well, probably, let me go at it this way. First of all, the, covenant, the, the original covenant was national. 
and so is this one, not individual. The old covenant was engraved in stone. We won't look up the, the six references, you know, Exodus, three places, Deuteronomy, and a couple of places, et cetera, that where everybody you know, knows where the, the old covenant was engraved. New covenant's engraved in the heart. And by the way, that's not limited just here to Jeremiah. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. I think this is worth the digression to give you this in perspective. Ezekiel. It may come as a surprise to you that Ezekiel has chapters before 38 and 39. In chapter 36, there is a very important passage. And um, oh, we'll just sort of pick it up about verse 24 to give you the flavor of the thing. It says, For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Now, Ezekiel's writing during the Babylonian captivity as a captive, but he's not talking about the return from Babylon here, because notice what he says, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries. He is anticipating the diaspora that occurred after the Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, and has lasted almost 1,900 years, or about approximately that. And... and um, is now the return since 1948 on. The last 40 years is a regathering in the nation Israel. Okay. And incidentally, this passage occurs before chapter 37, which is famous for the dry bones vision, which of course is the regathering of Israel, very graphically portrayed in, in, in the mind of, uh, of uh, Ezekiel. But here, this is sort of anticipating all that, saying, I will gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from your idols will I cleanse you. Knows verse 26, very important verse. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.